You're listening to the Lost Mountain Podcast. Lost Mountain exists to help all kinds of people find and follow Jesus. Today's message is from the series, The Compelling Community. We hope today's message encourages you towards a deeper relationship with Christ. If you have any questions from today's message, email us at info at lmbc.us. Link is in the show notes. If you weren't involved in uh, our sermon-based summer home groups, I hope that you will uh, maybe jump into, for a very short period, the four-week run of home groups we're going to offer next month as we uh, kick off a new series two weeks from today called Glorious Design, Glorious Design, um, seeking to see God's purpose and intent uh, with regard to gender, marriage, and human sexuality um, as our culture continues uh, to live Uh, and breathe um, a lot of confusion through that. So we felt like this would be a great opportunity, a great series uh, for a lot of us to spend just a few weeks as we go through the series through February, getting to meet in homes throughout that month and discuss what we're talking about on Sunday, share hurts, questions, concerns, um, things like that. So uh, you have an opportunity to sign up for those groups online um, on the app, and we'll say uh, more about that in coming weeks so that those of you that want to be a part uh, won't miss that, but they really are. It's a great opportunity for you uh, to be there. Also, um, coming up next Sunday is our uh, next night of prayer and worship, night of prayer and worship, and that's really exactly what we do. We have a very short devotion. Um, we sing together, and then we pray for various aspects of our life as a church. We'll be praying uh, specifically for God's uh, will and purpose and power and presence during uh, that series through February then. So um, whoever you are this morning, we invite you uh, to be a part of that. If you're a covenant member, uh, we strongly invite slash expect um, you to be a part of that a week from this Sunday evening as we come together as a body of Christ and pray and seek God's will. Last thing I'll say before we jump into the message this morning, uh, Greater Impact Special Offering still going through the end of uh, this month. As you can see, we have uh, met and exceeded our goal of 40000 now, $41,275, $6 you guys have given. So, um, yeah, that's super awesome. That's three years in a row that we have exceeded um, our special offering, which exists through December and January to encourage all of us to give sacrificially, to give something above and beyond what we normally give. It reminds us of whose we are, and it reminds us of who is the owner uh, of all that we have. So you can uh, find out more about that online if you want to. It's been out for a while. But if you haven't given, remember I said last week, we, we gauge the effectiveness of this two ways. Do we meet our goal? And what percentage of regular tenders and covenant members do we have that give toward it? So if you haven't given, we encourage you to do that. Giving is always, always about what God wants for you, not what he wants from you. Having said that, let's open our Bibles. If you have one with you, you can follow along on the app in the sermon notes section, uh, or you can follow along on the screen, or you can simply sit and listen as uh, we look at Ephesians, Paul's letter, the Apostle Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus, Ephesians chapter 3, as Paul is uh, addressing some, some real divisions and issues that are popping up in the life of the church, and he's having to remind them who they are in Christ and why, when they are actively being that, 
God creates through his power a very compelling community among them in which he is pleased to draw in the lost. Ephesians chapter 3, beginning with verse 4. In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all of the Lord's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to His eternal purpose that He accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, we'll be coming back to this um, in a few minutes, but I know when you get kind of to this point in a series that's, that's challenging us to understand the church in new and, fresh, new and fresh ways based on God's revelation in Scripture, that sometimes you have to do some clarifying. One of my uh, favorite uh, statements that any professor that I ever had made came uh, from a professor of New Testament theology who said once, and I'll never forget this, he said, whenever you teach or preach on Scripture or theology, you have to say everything all the time, or someone thinks you intentionally left something out. I found that to be very true. So let me uh, give two clarifying statements this morning at this point in the series. The first, if you were here when we kicked off the series, regards this idea of two visions for community that churches have that really result in two different kinds of churches at their heart. A gospel plus community or gospel plus vision for community and a gospel revealing vision for community. If you remember, we said gospel plus is where, where Christian people gather in church and do life together, but they do it around the plus part, around, the, around other shared interests or life stage or age or whatever. And so uh, everything that they do and their gathering and, and most of their life together by, by those looking in from the outside is, is naturally explainable, Right? It's naturally explainable, just as if uh, a bunch of young uh, New York Yankees fans got together and had great community and great fun, and they shared meals, and they laughed, and they got to know one another. You'd say, of course, they're young Yankees fans. Um, and when we gather in the church, always around shared affinities, like minds, same ages, same stages of life, same issues, it's explainable. Now, what I need to clarify is we're not saying there's no value in that, Right? Don't hear me say there's, there's no value and no time in which we need to be gathered around 
like needs, affinities, ages, or stages, simply that that tends to happen naturally. We will drift toward that. Churches have to work in the power of the Holy Spirit to see gospel-revealing community built. We have to actively choose to trust that what God says and reveals in His Word is true. That through the gospel of Jesus Christ, he breaks down all these dividing walls and barriers between us and really does unite us in one. We have to push for that. It's not that the other may not have value, but it is that the other is not a witness for the unique power of the gospel because it is explainable on human terms. The second clarification regards our ability and God's design for us to be uh, a witness, an e, uh, evangelistic witness as a corporate body rather than just as individuals. Again, I'm not saying you and I aren't called as individuals to be willing to talk with friends and neighbors, co-workers, etc., etc., about Jesus. Simply that in the West, we have so individualized it that we've taken it completely beyond what we find revealed in Scripture. And also, at the same time, have wildly misunderstood, if not just had no knowledge of, the place of the local church, the local fellowship of believers in the act of evangelism, in making visible what is invisible and what can be made far more clear and far more visible together than your specific life can display on your own. So it's not individual versus corporate. It's individual and corporate, yet corporate is what we have failed to understand or acknowledge. All right, with those two clarifications at this point, let's roll on here. Uh, Philip Yancey is a writer. How many of you have read anything by Philip Yancey? The Jesus I Never Knew, What's So Amazing About Grace? All right, about eight and a half of you. Um, Yancey, Yancey's a, a good guy to find, um, a good guy to read. I think you'll find him um, helpful. But uh, Philip Yancey writes, and one of my favorite books of his is a real small book. It's about 100 pages. It's almost a pamphlet called Church, Why Bother? Church, why bother? And it deals with his own pilgrimage of growing up in a very um, fundamentalist kind uh, of legalistic church in the South uh, and finding his way back by God's grace, not only into the local church, but an understanding of God's beauty and power in that. He writes in Church, Why Bother? and says this, several times, I have read the Bible straight through from Genesis to Revelation And each time it strikes me that the church is a culmination, the realization of what God had in mind from the beginning. The body of Christ becomes an overarching new identity that breaks down barriers of race and nationality and gender and makes possible a community that exists nowhere else in the world. In other words, if it can be explained and understood on the world's terms, it is not at its core the church that Jesus had in mind. Simply read the first paragraph from each of Paul's letters to diverse congregations scattered throughout the Roman Empire. They are all in Christ, and that matters even more than their race or economic status or any of the other categories humanity may devise. My identity in Christ is more important than my identity as an American 
or as a Coloradan, or as a white male, or as a Protestant. Church is the place where I celebrate that new identity and work it out in the midst of people who have many differences, but share this one thing in common. We are charged to live out a kind of alternative society before the eyes of the watching world, a world that is increasingly moving toward tribalism and division. Those words are just as profound and poignant today as when Yancey first wrote them a couple of decades, more so, I believe. Tim Keller gets at this idea of new identity as he talks about the gospel and says, the Christian gospel is the truth that I am so flawed that Jesus had to die. I am so flawed that Jesus had to die for me, yet I am so loved and valued that Jesus was glad to die for me. This leads to deep humility and deep confidence at the same time. Now listen to what he says. It undermines both swaggering and sniveling. I cannot feel superior to anyone, and yet I have nothing to prove to anyone. I do not think more of myself nor less of myself. Instead, I think of myself less. Keller acknowledges that the gospel creates a shift in identity, a shift in attitude. We see this. This is what Paul is talking about in Ephesians chapter 3. We just read verse 6. Look at verse 6 again. This mystery, this mystery to which God has made Paul a steward, this mystery of which God has, has now pulled back the veil and made known, to his creation, to all of humanity. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles, those who were hostile to God, cut off foreigners without home, without understanding of God, if you remember what Paul said in chapter 2. Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, one new body, Paul is saying, and shares together in the promise of Christ Jesus. In other words, what matters now, what matters now is not who you were before, but who you are together in Christ now. And what is true for the greater is even more true for the lesser. What I mean by that is this, this Jew-Gentile divide was the greatest divide since God made his covenant with Abraham. It was uh, the people who were in God and the people who were not. The people who were part of the covenant family of God and those who were outside of that. And Paul is saying this has been broken down. He's saying basically our shared shift in identity now, even for those who were members of Israel and Jews, now their supreme identity is not their Jewishness, but their Christianity. Our shared shift in identity fuels gospel diversity. It fuels a broad community because what is most important, what is most important is not my heritage or my background. It's not my political or social views. It's not my skills or lack thereof. It's who I am now because of Christ. And let me just give you um, three kind of identifiers that God gives us in Scripture for who you now are. Now, obviously, 
The reverse is true as well. If you're with us this morning and you've never put your trust in Christ, you've never heard the gospel preached and understood that the offer that God makes you to be forgiven, to be restored to him, to be washed and made new and made clean in Christ is not based on who you are or where you've been or what you've done or what's been done to you. It's not based on you cleaning yourself up or you're do, or you doing good stuff. It's simply based on you hearing that truth and having your heart opened by the Holy Spirit and believing it and placing your faith in Jesus saying, I believe Jesus, help me. If that's where you are this morning, that is your greatest need. Now, for those of you who have already been through that experience, this is who God says you are. First, he says you are a new creation. A new creation. Paul talks about this in light of the new eschatological world that is coming, the, the new end world that God is remaking and creating. And he says in 2 Corinthians verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, anyone, the person who did two or three decades in prison, the person who spent the last 10 or 12 years completely sexually confused and giving themselves to a lifestyle that has taken a tremendous toll, the self-righteous, pious, legalistic, moralistic person, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. You're a new creation. Second, you are a child of God. You're not just a new creation. You belong to God in an intimate, familial way. You are a child of God. Galatians 4, verses 4 through 7. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law. To redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Uh, every once in a while, we have a four and a half year old twins, they'll get mad at us. We're in a season where that happens a lot. I don't know if you parents have ever been through that, where you just uh, wonder if someone snuck crack to your children when you weren't watching. Um, but that's kind of what we're living through right now. And every once in a while, one of them will get mad at us and say, Go away! And sometimes we say something like, we'd love to, but we're legally bound to you now. <laughs> right? We're legally bound to you. We adopted you. You're ours and we are yours. I didn't plan to say that. <laughs> Verse 6, because you are his sons and daughters, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. Do you understand that it's the Spirit moving in you that allows you to understand the intimacy of the relationship that you now have with God in Christ? So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir, a child of God. Third, third one that we'll mention this morning, you're united with Christ. You're united with Christ. So you're a new creation, you're a child of God, and you're united with Christ, which means what is Christ's is yours. His righteousness is yours. The payment he made on the cross for the sin of humanity has been paid for you. 
because of your union with him. Look at Romans chapter 6, verse 4. We were therefore, um, to expand this, Paul's talking about what happens when we come to faith in Christ. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Are you, are you living a new life in Christ? I, oh man, I think we are so weak at this. I really think that we are so afraid of being understood as strange or different. Friends, Christians have been understood as strange and different, and, and different all throughout our history when we were living at our best because we simply did not share in the passions and uh, the interests of time and hobby and, and everything else, values, that the culture around us did. But I fear that that's very untrue of us in our day. We simply want to add Jesus to everything we're doing. Well, this is what I believe, and this is what I do, and this is what I cheer for. I'm going to throw Jesus in there and go on Sunday too. That's not, that's not how it works. Verse 5, Romans 6. For if we have been united with him, in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. So this, this new identity that we have as children of God, as new creations, and part of God's coming full new creation, as men and women who've been united with Christ, fuels a gospel-centered diversity that is not diversity for diversity's sake, but it is diversity that recognizes and witnesses to what God has done in the gospel. And given this shared identity and the gospel work that Paul mentions in chapter 2 of Ephesians, you can turn back there. I'll just read to you and kind of remind you from week, week 1. Paul says uh, in verse 13, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away, not just of God but from one another, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Verse 14 of Ephesians 2. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. See, the issue is it's not just that outside of Christ uh, we're not alike. It's that we're hostile to one another. Remember, what is true of the greater is even more true of the lesser, of all of the smaller distinctives and differences that we have. You see this. I remember um, working in the oil field as a younger man and being around a lot of rough, blue-collar kinds of guys. And it was the first time that I realized it's not just that Often, uh, the educated and the financially well-off look down on the blue-collar and the poor. It is also the case that the blue-collar and the poor look down on the educated and the financially well-off. The, the, the educated and financially well-off tend to look at the, the poor, and if, if, if we don't verbally say, it's kind of in our heart, look, they get what they deserve. They don't work very hard. They make terrible decisions. They've made terrible decisions, and this is what we are. And to be educated, we're so unbelievably ignorant of the many forces that create situations of systemic poverty. On the other hand, if you get around rough, blue-collar 
kind of people, they have the same bias and hostile dislike of the affluent and of educated people. They didn't get everything they got was given to them. They inherited everything they had. They've had all the breaks. They were born here. They look like that, whatever. This is who we are outside of Christ. And Paul says, in Christ, this has all been broken. Now, don't miss this. This has been broken down. This has been destroyed. It's not that we're trying to see the barriers broken down. Paul says they've been broken down. Your task and my task as followers of Jesus is to understand it, to spend enough time in Scripture that we begin to get it, to believe it, and then begin living it out, which is impossible without a community of faith. This is where we live it out. This kind of gospel-centered, gospel-created diversity should be inevitable in the church. Should be. It should be breaking down all kinds of boundaries of age, of economics, politics, social ability. Let's just be honest. Some of us are, are much uh, more at ease socially than others. Some people are, are terribly socially awkward and they have a, a really hard time just functioning in society. Church should be a place where they're welcomed in. Maybe that's you this morning. You're like, that's who I am. I can't get in and out of a grocery store without feeling anxiety. Church should be a place where you're loved and included, served, and where you serve others. Different backgrounds. Here's the thing about diversity, too. We talk a lot about diversity in our day, don't we? Anybody just kind of like, eh, when you hear the word now? Um, feel like it's been shoved in your face, down your throat with a tube? That's not what I'm talking about this morning. Don't hear. Part of our problem is that we hear everything through a political lens after the last six or eight years. That's our fault, and no one's responsible for that but us. We need to clear that thinking out and let ourselves hear things through a biblical lens, the biblical kind of gospel-centered diversity that we find in every single New Testament letter. We find in the very followers uh, that Jesus attracted, and even the disciples, though they were Jewish, that he called, were in such different Jewish factions that they would have hated one another, would never, ever have even been in the same company or eaten together outside of Jesus' calling. But this kind of diversity is both more important and simultaneously less important than we often think. Let me address that real quick. It's more important because it is the grand witness to the gospel. That's what Paul is getting at in 310 when he says God's intent, God's intent throughout eternity was that now, now through the church, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. Now, Paul isn't saying just to them and not the world. He's saying even to them. Even to the principalities and powers that Paul talks about later in the book of Ephesians. Both good and bad. Angels and demons, if you will. God's power. God's wisdom is now on display as they look at the church and go, we don't understand. Is this what the Creator's doing? All, uh, you know, the, the good ones marvel at it. The evil ones say, man, all the seeds of, of destruction and faction that we've sown and the Creator's power just wipes it away. Look at it. We don't understand. 
To this end, gospel diversity is extremely important. It is the the visible bond of our unity. It's the visible bond of our unity that shows off the power of an invisible gospel. You understand that? The gospel is a verbal message. You don't see it, but you see the authentication of it in gospel-centered communities of faith that cannot be explained simply by worldly understanding. Uh, New Testament scholar Daryl Bach said, no power, no power will be unaware of what God is doing and the authority to save that he possesses. The church, don't miss this, the church is a painting of grace with God at work on the canvas. Isn't that a beautiful statement? You ever been in a group, a Sunday school class, a small group, a a Bible study with one or two people that just irritate you? Maybe there are 10 or 12 in there, but it's a much better group when one or two of them are not there. I mean, let's be honest, how many of you have ever been in a group like that? Yeah, that's all of us who've been in groups. Yes. Yeah. But but what Bach says is so true, that the church, and, and that is a little, a, little, a little slice of it there, is a painting of grace with God at work on the canvas. Be careful, though. If you've been in church for a while and you didn't raise your hand, you might be. You might be that one or two that everybody else has a better time when you're not there. J. Max Stiles, who's a missionary and uh, a pastor internationally, in a great little book called Evangelism, How the Whole Church Speaks of Jesus, says a local church is a gathering of baptized, born-again Christians who covenant together in love to meet regularly under the authority of the Scriptures and the leadership of the elders to worship God, to be a visible image of the gospel and ultimately to give glory to God, to be a visible image of the gospel, and ultimately in doing so, to give glory to God. Um, Alistair Begg, who has a way with words, um, in dealing with this passage on Ephesians 3, said this to his church Parkside um, in the greater Cleveland area. Beck said, the big C church has to find its expression somewhere, right? The global, universal, historic church made up of all believers of all time has to find its expression somewhere. And we know from the New Testament, it finds its expression in the little C church, the local church. The local church contains the seeds, or if you like, the DNA of a remade world. This this is the idea that we are a counterculture for the common good. The world is supposed to be able to come in. He said in his context, Cleveland is supposed to be able to come in amongst us in all kinds of contexts, whether it's at the Welcome Center, in a small group, at a Sojourners event, or a worship service. Society is supposed to be able to come in and say, oh, oh. So this is an indication, not a perfect manifestation, right? Because we are imperfect people following a perfect God by the power of His Spirit. This is an indication, not a perfect manifestation, but an indication of what God has planned for all of eternity to do. 
And that is why there are Chinese people and Indian people and black people and white people and bright people and silly people and fat people and thin people and tall people and short people and so on. And somehow or another, they're all in there together. Why? The why is the key. True gospel-centered community that is characterized in its breadth and in its depth will inevitably cause the world to ask why. And Begg says, with all of the normal fragmentation, all of the normal evidences of a fractured world, the seeds of the remade world are present in the local community of faith. That is what Paul is pointing out. And it is God's plan from all eternity to unite everyone under Christ. This is why, this is why diversity is, is more important than you would typically think of in a church because uh, it evidences the truth of the gospel's work. It's also less important, though, because it is not an end in it itself, right? This is, I think, why we've been annoyed the last 10 years. Is it's been shoved at us like it is the end. Like diversity for diversity's sake is, is some kind uh, of grand thing, and it is not. Gospel-centered diversity is effect, not substance. The diversity in the local church, it matters very little in and of itself, but it matters enormously to the extent that it serves as a witness to the deeper reality of gospel unity. It reminds us of Ephesians 2, the verses that we just read, right? That God has taken all these people that were formerly far from him, far from one another, hostile toward one another, condescending to one another, judgmental of one another, and he's destroyed all of those walls and brought them together in Christ. It's, it's like what the United Nations want to do, but they can never, ever, ever accomplish. God's Spirit does it. And yet there are hindrances. This is why we struggle with it in church. Let me just point out three hindrances to you this morning, to uh, this kind of gospel-centered diversity that flavors our own lives with Christ and walk with Christ. When you get around people different from you, it's just such a joy to see how they see Christ and their questions and how they uh, come at things. But the hindrances we face, one, we've talked uh, a good bit about it. It's just ministry by similarity, which we tend to do because it works. It, it brings a crowd. That's age-based, based on marital status, based on profession, based on music preference, which is the worst, which is the worst to take a church and to uh, uh, simply cater, cater to the preferences of people by taking one church and giving it multiple different worship styles. Ministry by similarity is a huge hindrance. Consumeristic mentalities, a huge hindrance. Lo loving is hard work. Let's do this. We often do this. How many, of you, how many of you are married right now? How many of you who are married right now would say, keep them up, that loving is hard work? Yeah. Loving is hard work. Being the church of Christ is hard work. We have to sacrifice comfort. We have to set aside preferences. We have to realign resources and time and habits to be with one another, to understand one another, to listen to one another. That's what's so insidious about a church divided by music style. It's so silly and reprehensible because it just grabs a segment and says, we're going to cater to your consumeristic taste 
instead of saying, absolutely not. We will be one church, and some of it you will like, and some of it you will not. And some of it the person sitting beside you will like, and some of it they will not like, because it is not about what you like or what you don't like. It is about what God is doing in and through us for His glory, not for your consumeristic delight. I'm going to move on. Third and final one, uh, an, an invisible majority culture is a hindrance to, to true biblical diversity. This is hard because uh, culture by its very nature, uh, nature you can't see, right? But you know this. You know you can go to two different uh, chain restaurants and they have very different cultures. Go to two different stores that are the same store, they have very different cultures. Um, this is, when I talk about the invisible majority culture, it's what happens if, let's say we have a, a young man that, that always does kind of a pastoral congregational prayer up here on Sunday morning, uh, if we just leave him to his own devices, he's typically going to be praying about young man kinds of things, right? Things that are on his heart, issues of, of marriage and family and um, all kinds of things like that. And what it can whisper sometimes is that this is a church not with younger people in it, but for younger people. That's the invisible culture thing. Or if we only had an older man praying or an older woman praying, they're, they're typically going to pray about things that are on their hearts and minds at their stage of life. And it can say to people sitting out there, oh, not this is a church with older people, but this is a church for older people. Everything we do can say this. Um, in Romans 12, Paul reminds us that we're to treat one another better than ourselves. We're to honor one another. We're to lay down our preferences for the sake of others. It's the accent thing, right? You ever been somewhere and somebody said, oh, I love your accent. And you're like, I don't have an accent. People say, I have an accent. Can you believe that? Everyone else has an accent. That's the culture thing. That invisible culture can be very tough to, to break down, but all churches have to battle with it. Don Carson in his book, Love in Hard Places, said, ideally, the church itself is not made up of natural friends. It is, not made up, it is made up of natural enemies. What binds us together is not common education, race, income levels, politics, ancestry, accents, jobs, or anything else of the like. It is, or in this light, the church is a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. Let me give you a little word, uh, just a snippet out of um, church history. Pliny, Pliny the Younger, was how he was known, was governor of Pontus and Bithynia from uh, 110 to 113. So you're looking roughly kind of 20 years or so after the apostle John died. Not that long. Some of you have shoes older than 20 years. Some of you have t-shirts older than 20 years. Sharon throws mine away. And he writes this letter to Emperor Trajan, the Roman emperor at this time. And we have preserved for us a series of letters back and forth. And one of them is dealing with Christians, with these new Christians. And you get an insight into how they were seen and what they did. This is, these are our ancestors, right? And when trying to decide, how, you know, when do I take them to court? Do we kill them? Do we just thrash them? Um, what about the women? There's a lot of women too. Do we do the same to them? What, do we discriminate based on age? Um, Pliny says this, he says, I therefore postponed the investigation and hastened to consult you. He's writing to the emperor. For the matter seemed to me to warrant consulting you, especially because of the numbers involved. They just kept growing, 
right? They just kept growing. For many persons, now listen to this, right? Listen to this and filter it through Ephesians 3.10 and gospel-centered diversity as as a witness to the world. For many persons of every age, every rank, and also of both sexes are and will be endangered, meaning endangered when they come at them. Because he's saying this thing is spreading up and down side to side. We can't stop it. We don't understand it. For the contagion of this superstition has spread not only to the cities, but also to the villages and farms. He's like, I don't know what to do. It's going everywhere. It's men, it's women, it's young, it's old, it's rich, it's poor, it's royal, it's peasant. Everybody is coming together and worshiping. We don't understand it, and we don't know what to do with it. Leia Hurtado in Disorder of the Gods said, early Christian religious identity was distinctive from other um, kinds of religions in that it replaced all others for its devotees. Their identity now was in Christ. They were brothers and sisters. Didn't matter what they'd been, to, what they'd been before. In Yancey's book, Church, Why Bother? As he is very transparent and vulnerable about his own struggles and his own issues with the local church. Writes this as he begins in the mercy and grace of God to make his way back to the church. A LaSalle Street Church in Chicago, which is still there today, um, still worshiping, still a witness in the community. He said, LaSalle was the first church to give me a taste of wide diversity. On Sunday mornings, volunteers cooked a free breakfast. Part of this, based on where they are in the city, there's a lot of just foot traffic and people around. The smell of biscuits and ham does a lot for a sanctuary, I found, for senior citizens, many of whom stayed for worship. Roughly half of the senior citizens who wandered in for breakfast were black and roughly half were white. On cold mornings, on cold mornings, homeless people would wander in for breakfast too, and sometimes these visitors would stretch out on the pews and snored loudly during the morning service. I'm like, well, we have that kind of diversity, right? The congregation also included graduate students enrolled at Ph.D. programs at prestigious schools like Northwestern and the University of Chicago, as well as doctors, lawyers, and other well-educated professionals. Because of this mixture, whenever I taught classes or occasionally preached, I was forced to keep the gospel to a common level and ask myself if my words hold meaning for a homeless bag lady as well as a theological student. Let me close with this, and I hope it wraps itself around your heart and your mind. It certainly has mine. I came to marvel at the gospel's ability to speak simultaneously to rich professionals and also street people with no education. And I began to look forward to church as a place that surrounded me with people different from me. On the surface, we had little in common. Our commitment to Jesus Christ, however, gave us much in common. May that, in the weeks and months and years ahead, become, by the mercy and grace of God, through the Spirit of God and the power of His Word, become the true testimony and witness of our hearts here. Just a minute, I'm going to pray for us. As I pray, the offering ushers are going to make their way to their positions. 
when I finish praying, they're going to pass the buckets. We're going to receive offering as an act of worship, a declaration of Christ's lordship over our lives, our finances, our values. We declare him as the one we trust. You drop in your connection cards, drop in your giving envelopes. And as we make our way out later from this place, if you need to talk about where you stand with God, find, find Jake outside or find me. Find any member of this church. Find someone who invited you. And talk with them. Let's pray. For more information about Lost Mountain, visit us at lmbc.us. Thank you for tuning in today.